are going to continue in a study in 1 Peter. And for those of you who say, well, I haven't been here, so how can I continue? We're going to do a little review because it's essential to where we are at. We're in your Bibles in 1 Peter chapter 2. And we are going to be looking at, as Chris mentioned in the uh, introduction to the singing, the contrasts of those who come to Christ and those who have not. Of what happens to the person from before they knew Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, Lord being Master, Savior being Deliverer, to when they are following Him, becoming His disciples, a follower of Jesus Christ. And that's what we are called upon and God invites us to. And that is the essence of salvation, that I am going to subordinate my will, I'm going to give my will to God, and I'm going to do His will in my life. And hence, we find that embodied in the Lord's Prayer where it says, May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, which is a personal declaration that I'm going to follow after God's will rather than my own will and interests, knowing that really I end up being the benefactor of that and God receives the glory for it. And so we come to 1 Peter 2, and we have studied and looked at Jesus Christ as the capstone. That is the chief cornerstone. And we looked at the fact that a cornerstone normally is, in our Western thinking, is identified with usually the first stone laid. But we know that that simply isn't the case because the Bible says in Psalm 118, we're introduced to the concept of the chief cornerstone, is that it is the stone the builders just rejected and rejected and rejected and rejected. They set it aside, they set it aside, they set it aside. They built, while they might have built according to the pattern of the capstone, it was not in the structure that they were building. And we looked at that, there a single structure that would have a stone that would be unlike any other stone of the entire building. And that that structure would be a pyramid because the top capstone, the top stone, would have been a picture or a model of the entire structure, but it would not be put on until last, and it would not um, be fitted anywhere else in the building of God. And it is that capstone that Jesus Christ is portrayed as in Psalm 118, and that Peter wants to pick up here. Christ mentions it in Matthew uh, Paul mentions it in Ephesians and in Romans. We have several connections and use of this concept that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone, that the foundation of the building of God is modeled after him, and it points toward him that he is the culmination of that. And in Psalm 118, we talk about a very precious day, a day when the stone that the builders rejected becomes the chief cornerstone, the capstone, that there is a singular day that that happened. Today we are here to celebrate that day. That is what we are here celebrating, the day when the stone the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone or the capstone of the building of God. That is what we celebrate, for it happened at the resurrection of our Lord. We see the ultimate rejection of Jesus Christ at, at his crucifixion. And the trial and all that was involved in that when not only do we have the leaders of Israel opposing Jesus Christ, not only do we have the Romans uh, acknowledging and permitting his crucifixion, but we have the, the mob yelling out, crucify him, crucify him. Those very same voices that just a few days earlier were saying, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord at the triumphal entry. We're yelling out, crucifying this wholesale rejection of Jesus Christ as the cornerstone, as the, the stone of God that would be the capstone and that which all attention should be drawn to, that all of the working of God has built up to. That they rejected that. But that rejection did not negate who he was and what he was here to do. In fact, if anything, it enhanced it. But it does bring a precarious circumstance upon those who did reject it. And so in 1 Peter chapter 2, we find, therefore, in verse 7, Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word, 
to which they were condemned. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. You see, through this one cornerstone is the decisive element of all humanity. What you do with this stone determines who you are by definition. Now, the world would like us to think that we define ourselves in various ways. And so when I talk to men, one of the ways we define ourselves, when men talk to each other, what do you do for a living? Because that's part of our definition of who we are, because we're workers, and we understand that. When I see a bunch of ladies get together, they don't usually ask each other that initially. It's not one of their first statements. Usually it's about their family, things like that. It's all relational. But many times men will define themselves by their work, by their occupation, uh, and uh, that's fine. The world would like us to define ourselves that way. And of course, right now, in the last, I don't know, 8 to 12 years, uh, we have seen a resurgence of this idea that I identify myself by, my, by the happy accident of to whom I was born. That somehow, the color of my skin, the color of my eyes, all those things define me. And those things don't define you. You had nothing to do with those things. You had no part to play in that. That was all determined for you before you were ever born. I don't know why that's important to anybody. What should define us is those things that we decide. And, what have we, and here is the decisive element of all humanity is this cornerstone. Now, a pyramid stone, you land on one of those. We talked about it several weeks ago. You know it. You know what happens when you land on one of those if you've ever stepped on a Lego. That's my example I always give with bare feet. If you ever stepped on one of those, you know how much that hurts. You come across a pyramidic stone and you land upon it. The, Jesus Christ says it will break you into pieces. You will be broken into pieces. And if it lands on you, it will crush you to powder, Jesus Christ says. It is a judgment stone. It is a stone of condemnation if you try to oppose it. You reject that, you will be broken into pieces and crushed. It is that decisive of an issue in your life. You either choose to reject Jesus Christ or you choose to fully accept him. There is no middle ground. There is no gray area really here. We think there is in our mind. And to such a degree that Jesus says, many will come to me in that day, that is the last day, the day of accountability to God, and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this in your name and do that in your name? And Jesus' response to them is, depart from me. I didn't ever know you. So many will think they're serving God, but they have actually rejected him because they're not fully trusting and following him. And God is not fooled. You cannot do that. As we're going to see today, there is no in-between. And so the stone the builders rejected, they were disobedient. They were unbelieving in Christ Jesus, and it was breaking and it broke him and crushed them. It became a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. We're going to be looking at that a little bit more today. Uh, but that's the decisive element. This is what defines you. Either you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you adhere yourself as you conform yourself to this capstone. And we talked about the structure of a pyramid. That What we see now is not the full thing. If you look at the Great Pyramid, you see it as all of these jogs up, and those are not tiny little things. Those are like six feet tall. And, and so you see that and you think, well, that's how it was always done. Uh, no, there was another layer. So as you built up and put the capstone in place, then you built down the outside of that. And you added the, the, the fancy stones, the precious stones, the polished stones. And most uh, scholars believe that that Great Pyramid had a gold capstone and a white limestone exterior that would have been just spectacular when it was really fully done. We're just seeing the ruins of it, really. And so we conform ourselves. Every side must then conform to the capstone. Or it is dismissed. It has no place in the building of God. You either conform yourself to Christ or you perish. And so we define ourselves here. Either I am conforming myself to Jesus Christ and making him my Lord, Master, the de definition of who I am, or I am against him. There is no in-between. There is no neutral zone here within the building of God. You either have a fitted place or no place in his building. 
And this Peter has been developing, and we have looked at that. And now we're going to go a step further and look into this day where the stone the builders rejected, which really was focusing on Israel, but really all men rejected him at the crucifixion. Uh, And so we find the stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, that that day something spectacular happened to elevate him to its rightful place as the capstone of the building of God. And that is the resurrection itself, is that day. Let's go back to Psalm 118. I wasn't going to do this, but enough of you haven't read that, and so we want to look at that very quickly in Psalm 118. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, I will be reading it, if you'll listen carefully. Psalm 118. I didn't mark this one, so I have to look it up like you. Psalm 118. We want to pick up in verse 22. Let's read verse 21. It says, I will praise you for you have answered me and have become my salvation. When did God become our salvation? There was a day that happened. The stone which the builders rejected, verse 22, has become the chief cornerstone. This is what Peter is quoting from, and Jesus and Paul. Uh, this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes that that day, that one day, that God became our salvation, the day the stone, the builders rejected, became the chief cornerstone, it was not the doing of man, it was the doing of God. It was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our sight. The crucifixion was the work of men. Over and over again, read through the book of Acts, you'll find in almost every sermon in the book of Acts, the apostles said, you crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. The crucifixion was the work of men. It was what we did out of darkness, out of death, out of sin. We reject him. We crucify him. Our sin is there. And whether we were there yelling those words or whether we simply, in our sinful state, add to that sacrifice, that sacrifice was absolutely necessary. But make no mistake, it it was the work of men. That was not the day Jesus Christ was elevated to be the capstone. It was the day that the Lord did it and that it was marvelous. That is, it created marvel, awe. It was something that hadn't happened before. Well, the fact is crucifixion had happened thousands of times before and tens of thousands of times afterward. Many, many people were crucified. But only one rose from the dead. And that was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. It is awesome. I know that word's overused in our vernacular, but it is truly awe-inspiring that here is the day that the Lord did something that no man could do. It is marvelous in our eyes. Verse 24, this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day, the day of the resurrection, that the Lord did something no man could do to overcome what men's sin had done, overcome the rejection. And so here, Christ on the cross, rejected of men, and having his own father turn from him. And thus darkness came upon the earth, and Jesus Christ cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Alone on the cross, rejected, and yet he is the one elevated to the capstone because of the power of the resurrection. Yes, he died to cover sin, but that wasn't sufficient. Because then he would just be another sacrifice like so many sacrifices. But it is when he overcame sin and death that it became efficacious for us to move us from one place to another place. And that's what we're coming into today. So that's all review. And if you want to get more information about that, you get on our podcast. You listen to about six hours of sermons for the last five weeks. Well, okay, it's probably the other way around maybe five hours of sermons last six weeks. But anyway, something along that, and you'll get caught up fully on what that is, is entailed. We come now to the part that we rejoice and be glad in. This is the day the Lord has made because he has done something marvelous. And that is, we have the resurrection of Jesus Christ providing our salvation, making him the chief cornerstone, and now he is a stone of decision. What are you going to do with him? Well, Peter is writing to a group of people who have already trusted in Jesus Christ. They have already acknowledged him as their Lord and Savior. And now he writes to them, 
with all of these precious possessions and transformations that happen to the people of God once they stop rejecting that stone and start not only acknowledging it, just saying, just acknowledging it doesn't make you part of the building. All right, so if I stand out here and I look at a capstone on a pyramid made out of solid gold, glimmering in the sun of Cairo, and I stand there and go, wow, I am not part of the building. I am observing it, I'm acknowledging, but that doesn't mean I have adhered to it. I'm standing apart from it. But rather, to be one of those stones fashioned to fit into that and to conform itself to one of those sides of that and to be a perfect, symmetrical, fitted building now you get to be a part of it, and of course every side points itself, every angle of a pyramid points itself to the cap, to the top. And so we have that opportunity to be not just observers of from a distance, but be part of the building of God. That's what we're talking about. That's what Peter's referring to. That we are not just watching it happen, but we are part of it happening. That now we are becoming, he says back in verse 4 and 5 of 1 Peter 2, that we are becoming living stones in the building of God. That we don't get to participate, not just observe, but to participate in the salvation of God. We get to be partakers thereof. And so we come to these three contrasts, and they're going to be built out of a single contrast that made Jesus Christ the capstone. Jesus Christ went from death to life. I want you to think about how crazy that is. He went from death to life. You see, that's unnatural to you, isn't it? Because in our mind, um, normalcy goes from life to death. And in fact, even in the comics today, in, this, in the Sunday paper, the comics today, you had at least two comics talking about, well, all we can do is just enjoy the ride until it's over. Well, that's a nihilistic approach to life because that's all we got without Jesus Christ. That's all you have. We're not in control. There's nothing we can do. We can just enjoy the ride until it's over. That's going from life to death. And that's the natural man. Without the intervention of God, that's all you have. You are born, you have life, and you say, well, the inevitability of life is death. Well, no, it's not. (laughs) The inevitability of sin is death, the Bible says. But God can intervene. And what we find in this contrast in Jesus Christ is that he goes from death to life. And this is the work of God, and it is wondrous. It is awesome. It is marvelous in our eyes. It ought to be that he does a contrast that is startling. What we think of as normal and natural, well, we're going to go from life to death. That's the reality for everybody. Well, no, it's not. Not anymore. Because Jesus Christ went from death to life. Not by the inventions of man, not by the wizardry of science, but by the working of the hand of God. He went from death to life. This is marvelous and it is cause for praise and rejoicing. Because he went from death to life, we have three contrasts that can happen in our life that are dependent upon him being the capstone. Having been elevated to that place, it is all built upon the contrast of moving from death to life instead of life to death. And here they are, they're spelled out for us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. At the end of verse 9, it reads, We are a special people who proclaim the praises of him. We're proclaiming the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We'll start there. There are three. We go from darkness to light. The second one is that we are not a people, but are a people, can become a people of God, that we do not have mercy, and then we do have mercy. So we have three contrasts, and you are on one side of these contrasts today. You're on one side or the other. You're not in the middle. You're on one side or the other today as you sit here. You are either in darkness or in light. You are either not part of the people of God or you are the people of God. You are either without mercy in your life or you are, have obtained and, and possess the mercy of God in your life. There is no in-between. 
And so that makes the rock of Jesus Christ, the, the capstone, a decisive place, doesn't it? Because it decides which side of this point of decision you're going to fall. So let's talk about darkness to light. We talked about this last Lord's Day evening when we introduced the new study for our Sunday night series um, on time, and we looked at creation in Genesis 1, 1 and 2. Very good place to start if you want to talk about what time is and how it functions and how God works within it. Uh, But we found out that there's a reason, there's a cause behind the Jewish method of keeping time of days that we do not start the clock in the middle of the night, but that we start the clock at sunset. Why? Because the world started in darkness. The world began in darkness. And thus, our day should start when it's dark. When it becomes dark is the start of a Jewish day. And so, Passover starts out at sunset. That's the beginning of every holiday, every day, every uh, event in, in Eastern thought is that sunset starts your day. And it has a theological reason for that, is we all start in darkness because that's how creation started. There was darkness on the face of the deep. And so in the darkness, God spoke and introduced light. And thus we have modeled in our concept of what a day is from sunset to sunset. We say, well, here's a unit. We start in darkness and then we have the intervention of the sun, S-U-N. You can say S-O-N too. I'm okay with that spiritually. And then we have light. And the balance of the day is light. Think about that. In a Jewish day, you start in darkness, you bring light, and the rest of that day, it's light. It never becomes dark again in that day. Because as soon as it gets dark again, it's a new day. That has a theological foundation in Genesis chapter 1, 1, and 2, and it is how they define a day. We define a day that starts in the middle of the night and ends in the middle of the night. What a bizarre, sad commentary on what we believe. We believe life starts in darkness, you might get a little light, and then you're going to die in darkness. Think about that a little bit. That's our Western concept of life. You were nothing, you became something, and you became nothing again. That is totally unbiblical. That is the testimony of those who are in darkness. Not to realize that once the light comes, that you are now children of light, the Bible says. And that light doesn't go away. And this is the promise of God. This is what we sing praises for, that when Jesus Christ comes into our life, we are moved from darkness to light, and there is no fallback into darkness. There is no cycling back. But that our lives move from darkness to light, and that lightfulness of of, uh, uh, life committed to Jesus Christ is permanent. It's a permanent condition. And notice the use, you've moved out of darkness into his marvelous light. You cannot miss the same English word. I know it's not the same because one's Hebrew and one's Greek. But the same English translated word from Psalm 118, we have seen his his marvelous act. Here we have his marvelous light. It's connected to Jesus Christ. He moved from death to life. We can move from darkness to light. And darkness is that condition of Number one, sin. We recognize that as a condition of man. I'm in sin. I'm condemned. I'm guilty. All of that is associated with darkness, but there's another aspect of darkness, and that is, and we talked about it last week, that really darkness isn't a thing. It's an absence of things. You have an emptiness. The Bible uses the word void. It's just empty. The Bible talks about having darkness. It's not just about being evil. It's about being empty. Void. You have nothing. Darkness can't be defined because it's just the absence of anything. You have no hope. You have no expectation. You have no joy. You just ride the ride till it's over and then it's done. What despair is that? What meaninglessness is there to that? 
God calls us to something better. He has intervened in the darkness and he's filled that void with fullness and meaning and light. And he invites you to trust in him that you might move from this darkness into light. There's another element of darkness. And the other element that darkness is often used in scripture to refer to ignorance. And ignorance is not being dumb that you can't learn. Ignorance is I just don't have information on that. The word ignorance simply means I don't know. And there was a lack of knowledge, and the Bible says where there is a lack of knowledge, the people perish. There was a lack of revelation from God. If you do not have the information that you are in darkness, that there's death there. And so Jesus Christ brings revelation. We call him the revealer, that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That all that I teach is what the Father teaches, that what we teach out of God's word, because it's God's word. He wants to fill your emptiness with truth. This is how you move from darkness to light, that you cannot believe what you have not heard. Romans chapter 10. How can they believe in him whom they have not heard? And in their ignorance, in their lack of knowledge of the truth, there is darkness. And God wants us to move from that into light. That's why we gather on a regular basis, bring our Bibles, crack them open, and struggle through verse after verse, and not struggle, we enjoy it, I hope, I enjoy it. I wouldn't do this for a living if I didn't. I would, I, would, I would do this for not a living, okay? I would just do this, because uh, enjoy it. It's time in God's word. You should enjoy that. If it's not, ask yourself, am I in darkness or light here? So the Holy Spirit says, I will come, and if anyone asks for wisdom, I'll give it to him. And so we come to the Holy Spirit, we ask him, we come to God's word, we want his revelation so that we can move from darkness to light. We go from ignorance to being informed. So we want to know the truth, knowing that the truth has an impact upon what, not only what we know, but what we believe. It should frighten you today that in the, I, some of my growing up, we talked about that these are the age of information, and now it is the age of disinformation, isn't it? Now you're not allowed to say the truth in certain venues, because men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds are evil. God says, through Jesus Christ, I want to move you from darkness to light. I want to move you from all of these things that darkness represents, emptiness, ignorance, sin, death. I want to move you from all of this, from meaningless, from despair, from hopelessness. You can move from that into light, which is the antithesis of everything there. You can't make that happen. Men have tried. They've tried to just conjure up things in their mind that give them meaning. And, and, but they're empty and void. And this is what the book of Ecclesiastes is all about. The wisest man on earth explored all of these things. I'm going to get wealth. I'm going I'm to have pleasure. I'm going to do all these things. But then at the end, I find out I'm dead and it's worthless. It doesn't mean a thing. And so we can't solve the riddle of darkness because we can't create light. Only God can. I know we think we can, but we didn't create the electricity. It, it, we're manipulating it, but we're not creating it. God created light, and we move this from darkness to light, and this is the testimony of creation. This is the testimony of the new creation that God offers to you. You want a meaningful life? You want to be redefined? I want to be a new person. Well, you, you can try to do that on yourself and make resolutions and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do things different in my life. But the fact is, is that in the end, they'll be dissatisfying. If you do not introduce the principle of Jesus Christ and the person of Jesus Christ into your life, that that gives that meaning and it moves us to light. And for that, we praise God, we rejoice today because now, whether you've accepted Jesus Christ or not, the offer is there. And for that alone, you should be thankful today, that you have a choice. Because prior to Jesus Christ, you didn't really have a choice. There was darkness, and there was darkness. Now God offers you something. You can either trust in him and walk in the light as he is in the light, or you can remain in darkness. For that alone, you should be thankful. I'm thankful when people send me information, even if it's information I don't agree with, because now I can study it out. And I can say, well, thank you for that information. 
Um, I'm not sure I believe any of it, but thank you, I'll investigate that. Okay, and so my mechanic, whenever I take my truck in, well, it could be this, could be that, could be that. I was like, okay, I got to, which one is it? Well, we're going to have to investigate. I think it's this, and then he works on that, and it's still a problem. Well, it might be this, and then we work on that. But at least he's trying. At least we have a direction somewhere instead of just saying, I don't know what's wrong with it. You know, I don't know what's wrong with it either. It's busted. You know, that's what I say to my three-year-olds when they do things. It's just busted. You can't do anything. Just throw it away. I'm thankful for someone bringing light information so that I can evaluate it and then we work through it. I can reject it and still say it's broken and throw it away and get a new one because that's the American way. Um, <laughs> but, but at least he's given me an opportunity to say, well, you can fix this. And God has given you light. You can fix your life. But you're going to have to conform it to Jesus Christ. He is the capstone. You either are broken on it or you conform to it. There's no in-between. Do you want light, or do you want to stay in your darkness? And don't think religious people are all in light, because Jesus Christ himself described the religious leaders of Israel in his day as the blind leading the blind. So there are plenty of religious people out there who are in darkness. They're blind. They think they've got a handle on something, but it is not Jesus Christ as the capstone of the building of God. So this is the marvelous thing, that we are out of darkness. We have an opportunity, and for those who are following in Jesus Christ, we have moved from darkness to light just as he went from death to life. Verse 10 now has a secondary effect, contrast. You are one of these two people. And this is all being built out of another passage out of the Old Testament, out of an Old Testament prophet that many of us are very unfamiliar with, and that's too bad um, because it speaks a lot to what we are experiencing, I think, not only in the world but in the church today. And, and that's the book of Hosea. And what Peter is saying here in verse 10 is right out of Hosea, so we're going to go there here shortly. But he says that you who once were not a people are now the people of God. You who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. We're going to kind of handle these two together, but let me define these two for you, and then we're going to move into Hosea and see how he introduces them to us in the fullness of it. So we are not the people of God born. We are not born in that condition. Because uh, we are born with human fathers, we have inherited sin. Uh, that sin is passed down from father to son, father to daughter, doesn't matter whether you're male or female, but it passes through the husband, through the father. Uh, that's why the virgin birth was so necessary, because our Lord did not have inherited sin from his, for, his father, because he was born of a virgin, no human father. So there was no sin nature, they call it, or inherited sin that made him guilty at birth. And this is the condition that we are not the people of God. That even though we might be born in a state of innocence, we are not without guilt, and that seems a contrast, a contradiction, I should say, but it is not. And we'll, if we can explain that, talk to me afterwards, I'll be glad to. I don't have time today to get into that. But we, great theological stuff there, by the way. And so we are not the people of God. So how do I become part of the people of God? This is the question. How do I go from being an alien to being a citizen? Let's put it in those terms, shall we? Because we're a border state, so we all know those terms, right? Aliens and citizens. We know those differences, right? I was going to pick on Maria here because I went to her citizenship thing where she got her citizenship, um, but they're in Mexico now, so <laughs> what a bummer. Um, and so we understand the difference between aliens and citizens. Those that don't have the rights and privileges and those that do. Well, in spiritual terms... We get to move from being aliens, that is, foreigners to the kingdom of God. That is, we are outsiders. We have no other rights and privileges of the blessings of God. We're going to see what one of those rights and privileges is the mercy of God. We have no access to those. We have no, no right to them, no claim upon them, that we are truly complete aliens 
that we, have, we can ask nothing of God and expect nothing from him but judgment because we are outside of his family, of his people, of his nation. The word people there is really not family, it's nation. It's a concept that we are, so it's not, you know, you have to be born into it. No, it's a nation, that we are outside, we're aliens. This is your condition. This is the condition you were born into. There are no born, fleshly born citizens of heaven. There are only spiritually reborn citizens of heaven. You need to have a birth, but Jesus Christ says you have to be born again in John chapter 3. And this is what he's referring to, because your physical birth makes you associated not with God, but with men. Particularly, it makes you associated with the sin of your father and all your forefathers going all the way back to Adam. And so we have this inherited sin that makes us aliens and foreigners to the kingdom of God. And in that condition, we have no opportunity, we have no right, we have no expectation of being allowed into the place of God's country. And that being heaven. You have no right, no claim there, no expectation of that. If you think Trump's border wall is something, you should see what God's got up there. There is no back door. There is no climbing over it. There is no tunneling under it. There is no way around it. You are aliens, foreigners, dispossessed. But through the working of Jesus Christ, who comes and dies for us and says, if you'll trust in me and then is raised from the dead, he has placed in the capstone. Now, if you'll follow me, if you'll conform yourself to who I am, you will be called sons of God, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. You're not just going from being an alien to a citizen. You're going from being an alien to an inheritor. The highest privileged position. Remember we talked in the pyramid that your conforming stones are all angularly cut and all make uh, direction to the capstone and they're brilliant and they're fancy, they're precious and they're what is more visible. And that is the church of Jesus Christ. We are here to adore Christ and to adorn him and to draw attention to him. But we are all fitted in to his building because we conform ourselves to him. This makes us more than just citizens. It makes us truly family. But the promise here is that you're going to go from aliens to citizens. That now, as a person who has fully invested myself in Jesus Christ and acknowledged who he is, that he is God incarnate, that he has died to cover my sins, that he's rose to death from the dead to conquer sin and death for all time, for all men, that I who have, have trusted in that are going to conform myself to Jesus Christ, that now I have a place prepared for me in heaven that I can't wait to get to. I am now a citizen of that land. And this is something I rejoice in. And we sing these songs, this world is not my home, I'm just passing through because we recognize that now my hope isn't in this stuff that just all deteriorates and, and that is science, that's the law of thermodynamics, that everything goes to chaos and that is this world. But in that world, nothing goes to chaos, there's perfect order. And that is what I want to be a citizen of, that I go from being not a person, not a people of God, to being a, I go from being an alien, a foreigner, to being a citizen and a rightful heir, a joint heir with Jesus Christ. This is the offer of salvation today. But again, the decision stone is Jesus Christ. Are you going to break on it, or are you going to conform to it? There's no in-between. Associated with becoming a citizen of heaven is to be a, rec a recipient of mercy. Mercy is forgiveness. It's about not getting what you deserve. <laughs> Americans are all about rights, aren't we? Uh, we love to, to say we have these constitutional rights, and even in our declaration, we, we talk about that we believe these to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, none of which is true. Sorry, if you want to debate that with me, we, we'll have a meal and you can sit with me and we can debate that all the way. None of those things are true. 
None of you were created by God. You were made by your parents. God created mankind, Adam and Eve, but everyone else is in the image of mom and dad. The Bible word for that is begotten. Technically, you are begotten people. You're not created. Okay? And you do not have inalienable rights, as the Constitution states, because that would mean that you cannot be separated from them, but death is a separation of you from life. And our experience is, is that you can, all, all things can be separated from you, even life itself. If God said these are inalienable, then they would truly be unable to be separated from you. You could not be alienated from them. But the fact is, all of your freedoms can be alienated from you, taken away. Easily. People have done it throughout all of history. And so God has not declared those things. There is only one right that we can claim, really, and that is the right to death because of my sin. I have earned that, the Bible says. The wages of sin is death. That's my inalienable right. Mercy is granting people something of forgiveness. Uh, of granting them a forgiveness that, that they are owed. So I have a right to death. This is what my sin demands. The fact that I am uh, a man who has not only inherited sin from my parents, but also my father, but also I have sinned by both commission and omission. Uh, that is, I have done things I shouldn't do and I have not done things I should do. Those are the two categories of sin, of of disobedience to God, and therefore I carry my own guilt, and now I have to answer to God for that. And the wages of sin, the, the, what I've earned because of those three sins, inherited sin, sin of omission, sin of commission, is death. And not just physical death in this body, but eternal death in the lake of fire. I have earned that right. Mercy says, even though you're guilty, I am going to forgive you. I'm not going to give you what you deserve. So I'm going to challenge you today that when you say you've gone from not having mercy to having mercy, you either stand guilty or you stand forgiven. When you have received the mercy of God, it does not make you unguilty. It makes you declared non-guilty. That means that I brought my guilt to God. I laid it out there. He has forgiven it through Jesus Christ. And now I can stand in his mercy. That is, I am not going to get the judgment that I rightly deserve. This is what I have earned. But God says, I'm going to withhold that from you. Not because you, I like you, but because I am a merciful God. We're not talking about whether someone is likable to God. We're asking you, what have you done with Jesus Christ? If you've rejected him, you are rejecting the offer of mercy from the heavens. If you accept him, you are the recipient, the possessor of the mercy of God. It is yours, and it does not, it, it does, it's not ever taken away. It's not, it's not removed. You never go back to a state of being without mercy. This is the promise of God that as I conform myself to Jesus Christ that I will obtain mercy. I will be his people, his son, and there is no one I am more merciful than to those that I dearly love within my own family. And that's true for every one of you. You are more merciful, you are more tolerant, you are more patient with those within your family than you are with strangers in the world. We just are. Love makes that happen. And God has been merciful, um, and, but to be obtained, to possess that mercy. That's why Peter uses the word to obtain mercy. That it is our possession. It is something I hold on to, the mercy of God, that I know I deserve death. I know I deserve the lake of fire forever and ever. I know I deserve condemnation and judgment, but I can hold on to this. And now, I, I, I had no mercy. I could hope for mercy, but I had no access. I had no possession of it. I had no holding. I didn't obtain it. But now over here, as being a member of the family of God, being a people, being in this condition in the light, I have it as my possession. I have obtained it. I have a title deed to the mercy of God. What a wonderful condition. Oh, that we would praise him and glorify his name. All because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I can go from being Without mercy to having mercy as a possession 
that I have. As I shared, this is all built out of the book of Hosea. Let's go to the book of Hosea very quickly. That's a part of your Bible you might have a hard time opening. In fact, I have a special marker here just for it. <clears throat> there. Hosea chapter 1. Now, if you don't know the story of Hosea, Hosea was an unusual prophet. All of them were, by the way. They were all weird ducks. I mean, when a guy walks around preaching naked for three years, you know you got some things going on there, right? Because that's what God required of him. I mean, and even John the Baptist, I mean, the guy was eating locusts and wild honey and walking around in very uncomfortable clothing. Uh, and so they were all of that nature. Um, and maybe today you're looking at me and say, yeah, you're right there with them, brother. You know, uh, you're associated with that group. And I'll be, I will gladly wear that shingle, okay? I'll put that on my badge. I will gladly do that. And it, it should concern you that the world doesn't think you're weird. Because it means you look more like them than like God wants you to look and act and talk and think. But here we go. Hosea was one of those guys, and the Lord uh, tells him, go get yourself a wife that's going to be a harlot. Is a harlot, will be a harlot, an untrustworthy woman. Because your wife is going to represent the nation of Israel and my relationship with them, and your wife is going to be unfaithful um, to you, and through that, and through the children he bears, she bears with you, and in harlotry, that we're going to have a testimony, and this is how you're going to preach. You're going to, so every child born to you is going to be a sermon. I know my kids think that's true because I use them as illustrations in a lot of sermons, but not like this, okay? I didn't name you after these. And so the first child is born as a son, they call him Jezreel. And you don't know much about Jezreel, probably, but Jezreel is probably the correct pronunciation. Uh, you would know it as the Valley of Megiddo, or the place where the Battle of Armageddon happens. Armageddon is the Megiddo Valley, which is also the Valley of Jezreel. And so, he, name your child Jezreel. This is the city where Jezebel was killed um, by Jehu's chariot and things like that. So there's a place of, of judgment and of death. Uh, Jeze Jezreel really means the Lord sows, but it also means the Lord scatters. Because that's how they sowed seed. They didn't have those little planters that drill them, those little seed drillers that puts them in the soil exactly spaced in the right distances apart like our farmers use today. Um, rather, they just went out there and tossed it and then raked it in and get it into the ground. And so the association between the Lord scatters and the Lord sows is kind of interesting because one is judgment and one is blessing. And they're both going to be used in the book of Hosea. You're under judgment, but I want you to be under blessing. So at the beginning, they're under judgment because they were serving idols. They weren't serving the one true and living God. God had granted them the light of that information, and they rejected it because they rejected the stone the builders, that they rejected that stone that would become the capstone. And so we come to this, and so that's the first son that's born is Jezreel. And it says, this is going to be the end of the kingdom of the house of Israel. It had come to pass in that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. You're going to be destroyed as a nation. You're under judgment. The Lord is going to scatter you, and he did. They were scattered among the nations. In fact, today we still talk about the ten lost tribes of Israel. They were that scattered that even today, in Mormon theology, they think they are the ten lost tribes of Israel. That's how extensive God scattered them. But by the end of the book of Hosea, he's going to use the same word Jezreel to refer to God's sowing. That is, God's going to plant you and grow. We're going to move from judgment to blessing. But there's some stuff going on in between. Second child is born to Hosea and his, and his um, prostitute wife. And she conceived again and produced a daughter. And the daughter's name became Lo-Ruhamah. Lo-Ruhamah means, in its essence, having no mercy. God will have no mercy. In your current condition of idolatry, of, of rejecting God, rejecting his truth, rejecting that, you will have no mercy. God is going to scatter you without mercy. And then, do you see that Lo-Ruhamah? That's exactly what Peter is building off of. Now, instead of not being the people, you're going to move to being the people of God. And then 
She gives birth to a third, and this is a son. So son, daughter, now son. Uh, and God says, his name is going to be Lo-Ami. For you are not my people, and I will not be your God. You are aliens now. Lo-Ami, lo means not. Uh, you are not my people. These are the same concepts that Peter is drawing from, of talking about we're going from not my people to being the people of God. You see, Israel in her idolatry and disobedience and wickedness, God says, I reject you. I essentially am, am isolating and alienating you. I am putting you aside. You're under judgment with no mercy. You are not my people. Because you do not accept me. You do not follow after me. You follow after your own interests, your own sin, your own idols, your own gods. And so you are, you are scattered without mercy and not my people. You can't stake claim to my kingdom anymore. This is the condition of Israel. But then God says, I, want, I don't want that to be the permanent condition. For there will be a time. And he talks about that off and on throughout the book of Hosea. Uh, he talks about it in chapter 3 and chapter 4. Um, but really, even after these names, he says, this isn't, this isn't what I want. This is what they require. But there will come a time. And this is given in right after, right after God says, they're not my people. God says, here's how to make them my people. And this is an interesting way of communicating that we are foreign to because if we want to cut somebody off, we don't give them any avenue of escape or return. I have not... I have, not seen any divorces that were written where here's the avenue of reconciliation. I've never seen that part of a legal writ of divorce. Here's the avenue of reconciliation um, because we don't seek reconciliation. We don't seek to fix things, but God does. God sees your darkness. He sees you're an alien. He sees you have no mercy, and he says, that's not a permanent condition I want for you. I'm going to give you an avenue to reconciliation, make it right. And so he offers that right away. Having said, you're going to be scattered. You're, you don't have no mercy. You're not my people. He says, but a day will come. A day will come. He says in the middle of verse 10, it says, and it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There it shall be said to them, you are sons of the living God. Then the children of Israel and the children of, the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and appoint for themselves one head. And they shall come up out of the land for great will be the day of Jezreel, the day of sowing instead of scattering. When is that day? It is the day when they appoint for themselves a single head or capstone. He describes that day in chapter 3, and he says that the children of Israel, in verse 4, shall abide many days without a king, a prince, without sacrifice, sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. A teraphim is an idol. They'll last little, many days afterward. The children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. And that is a very technical term in prophecy to refer to the last days. Those days are still future to us. Near future to us. Very near future to us. And so God offers that means of reconciliation throughout the book of Hosea. But I want you to look at the foundation of it in verse, chapter 4 of Hosea, verse 1, because this is what we want to communicate to you today. Hear the word of the Lord. That's the revelation that we talked about, the revelation, the information you need. You children of Israel, and now by the time we get to Peter, it's to all men, but for the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. Here is the charge. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. And he goes on, lifts some wickedness there that we see happening, swearing, lying, killing, stealing, adultery, breaking all restraint. That is just doing whatever they want with, with bloodshed and upon bloodshed. And the land itself will mourn. And everyone who dwells there will waste away with the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, even the fish of the sea will be taken away. This is the condition. But notice the charge. The charge is there's no truth or mercy, or knowledge of God in the land. 
this is the condition of the world today and that we want to penetrate. That where there is no truth, we want to come with the truth. That where there is no mercy, we want to come with mercy. Where there is no knowledge of God, we want to come and teach them who God is, what he requires, what he has done for them. This is our mandate. This is why we persist here on the earth and don't just check out as soon as we get saved. That would be the easy road. The thief on the cross had it pretty easy compared to Paul. We find this judgment of God. You are not my people and you will not receive mercy because there's no truth, no mercy or knowledge of God in your land. And notice its connection again in verse 5 to 1 Peter 2. It says, Therefore you shall stumble in the day. The prophet also shall stumble with you in the night. You will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being priest for me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. The more they increase, the more they sinned. And he just talks about this condition. Do you see all the same principles that Peter's been talking about? And you, You're stumbling over something. It's there, but you're in the dark, and you don't see it. You don't have a knowledge of the truth. You, don't, you aren't being taught the truth. You're being lied to. You're being kept in the dark, and because of that, you keep tripping over and tripping over and stumbling over the truth, the provision of God, and you reject it by stumbling over it, and you curse it, and you kick it out of the way. That's what I do when I stumble over something. Isn't that what you do? I mean, when the grandkids are done playing in the basement, I walk down there, it's in the dark, and I'm in my socks, and I step on something and it hurts, one of the first things I do, okay, um, that's what you do to it, isn't it? Come on, am I the only one that does that? I'm looking at the mommies here. Do you throw the toy out of the way or what do you do? You kick it, something, dads? And so, well, I I don't sit there and curse my kid because I don't want that on their head, but I certainly curse the object, say, you dirty, dumb kids. because if they were smart, they would know not to let that happen because you don't want an angry pep-pep. And so, but they aren't there. So I kick the thing. It's in the dark. It hurts. And I recognize that. God recognized that. You're in darkness. You keep stumbling over Jesus Christ. It, it hurts. You're called a sinner. You're called ignorant. You're called deserving of death. That's painful. And it would be an easy thing to get angry and to just kick that thing aside and curse it. But then you're still in the dark and in pain without hope when that very thing is your deliverer. It is the offer of God and God says, don't stumble over it. Adhere to it. And then you will step right out of the darkness into the light. You'll go from being an alien to being a citizen. You'll go from being under judgment without mercy to being full of mercy. This is what God wants. Do not think that God wants you in this state of darkness, that he likes that at all. He has, through the names of these three children, said to Israel, you are going to be scattered without mercy and you're not going to be a people of mine. But that was necessitated by their sin, not by God's will. God wanted them to be delivered. And he still does. He still wants you to be delivered. This has been a very long message, but it's because I do all that review. But it's a very simple, direct decision you need to make. And I invite you to do it today. You are going to make a decision about this today one way or the other. You're either going to reject it by neglect or by cursing it and kicking it aside, or you're going to accept it and adhere to it. You are going to make a decision about this today and every day. I invite you to make the right one, to go from darkness to light. That you might go from an alien to a citizen in the kingdom of God. That you might go from being under judgment without mercy to being full of mercy as your possession. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for your word and for this message. And we pray that you might help us to recognize what you have done for us, out of your love for us, that we might submit ourselves to you. And I pray that if there's any here still in darkness, that they might 
just continue to be reminded of your word today, your offer, that it might uh, just aggravate them in their heart, in their spirit, in their mind, that they must decide, that they might receive you, that you might convict them. I can't do that. No one can but you. For you are the author of light. You are the grantor of mercy. It is you who chose, chooses your own people. So Lord, we pray you might work in these lives. That we might choose wisely today. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.